Well, hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Gaming from the First Age. My name is First Age, and in this particular episode, well, I've got a little bit of something for everything. And therefore, well, who knows, perhaps not quite enough for anyone. <laughs> well, stick with me, let's see. And I'll run through what I want to cover in this episode. I would like to spend some time talking about Eventide, just to see how I'm doing with it really. Eventide is a subsector in my, well, what I'm going to call forming setting of Hinterspace. So it's something that's obviously quite distinct from Chartered Space and the Third Imperium, I think adequately covered by Mongoose. And it's something of my own. And it's something that's going to riff, if you like, off Cepheus Deluxe, which is, as you may know, Stella Gamma Publishing's light airy and inventive take on the first edition SRD of Traveller. It's all open content and is perhaps, as I've mentioned before, it tingles. It's possibly the Traveller for me, at least at the moment. And I'm writing a subsector for it. Not only that, but I'm also looking to showcase a little bit of it in an adventure called Always Be Prepared, which I am in the process of preparing for convention play, which is coming up. So I'd like to talk a bit about all of that and what I want to try and get out of that and why I'm doing it. I would also like to talk a bit more about 4th edition Dungeons and Dragons. Yes, it's still going. (laughs) And I'll talk a bit about where I've got to on the ongoing campaign, uh, what I'm trying to do, what I'm enjoying and where I think it might go. Bearing in mind it's, it's now well over a year in actual elapsed time of play. So, you know, it's got legs, safe to say, but where is it going and how do I sustain where I am now into a satisfying, well, I'm going to say conclusion. Let's see. And finally, to wrap up, I thought I would just run through, well, kind of what's going on, what's caught my eye, what I'm up to and what I'm preparing for next. So if you like my gaming life as at today. And hopefully that will spark some some interesting thoughts from yourself as well. So it's a three-parter, I would say. Um, A little bit, as I say, of everything. Uh, Something of nothing, perhaps. But before even all of that, let's have a couple of call-ins. Hey Graham, it's Che from Roleplay Rescue. Just listened to Emergent Campaigns and I just loved that episode, man. Really great stuff. Really thought-provoking. And yeah, I'm so glad that you had this sort of 35-session campaign so far. There's still some room to go. And, you know, fourth edition of the Dragon Game, as you put it. Brilliant stuff. Really, really interesting to listen to. And of course, very close to my own heart. It's everything that I would dream of in a game, really, that you would start and you would just kind of find a way of moving forward and keeping going. And yeah, something great would emerge. So just so glad to hear that story. Thank you so much for sharing it. It's really good. It's really inspiring. And you know, I just think even if that was the only one you ever did in your gaming career, that would just be such a great memory, wouldn't it? To, to sort of go through something which had legs. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it. And, and uh, you know, hope you're enjoying your retirement too, man. Game on. Thank you so much, Che. That was Che Webster from Roleplay Rescue, a podcast that I would absolutely recommend that you subscribe to and get listening to if for some bizarre reason you aren't already. Che, Che's 
podcast is really insightful. And as Che goes on his journey to reclaim our lost role-playing hobby, he very much takes you with him as he explores different facets of getting the most and best out of our hobby. So highly recommended. Slightly on the quiet, I'm, I'm a little bit hopeful that I might be able to you know, have another one of these long, ongoing, rich campaigns. If I can do the first one by accident with 4th edition Dungeons and Dragons, well, maybe I'll do another. And frankly, if I can do that, well, do you know what? Anyone can. <laughs> but there we are. Anyway, enough of that. What is interesting, though, is what Che's doing, not what I'm doing. Um, so Che has an interesting mode of play that he is currently exploring. And that is... Well, it's built on a premise, and I want to get this sort of as right as I can. The premise is, the more, or indeed if you put anything in front of players, and by that I mean character sheets, mechanics, system, game, dice, you know, all the things that we want, might expect in a, well, let's say a, a traditional role-playing game, um, with a traditional set of roles, a group of players, and a GMDM, by putting those things in front of the players, you are diluting and distracting from the purity of the role-playing experience. I think I've got that right. So essentially there's a cognitive switch that has to take place between looking at a character sheet which has got a series of abilities, you know, skills, dice rolls, all that kind of stuff, and the experience of being the person in the, well, possibly the emergent world in which the group is exploring. And so the game becomes an impediment, really, to the role-playing. And so Che's mode of play that he is exploring is to take all of that away from the players, all of it. So you, you don't have character sheets, you don't have dice. And all of that cognitive load, game load, I think it was described in, the, in one of the podcasts as a board game load, is taken out and away from the players and all comes across to the GM DM. So the GM is continually running the game mechanically from you know, behind the proverbial screen, as it were, and is, is actually doing the game. So the game hasn't disappeared. It's just all come across to the GM. The players have nothing in front of them except the experience and the discussion around what their characters can and can't do. And that is a mode of play that is deepening the role-playing experience for those participating in it. Now, I was quite interested in that because one of the joys of the fourth edition campaign was really enjoying getting into the game part and sharing that load uh, amongst the players. Now, there's an interesting move, of course, with a lot of games to take all the game away from the GM. So actually, the sort of storytelling uh, direction of travel is the other way uh, and is actually putting fiction sort of fiction first story-based mechanics into the player's hands and take it away from the GM um, so the, the, there's, a, there's a lot of interesting things at play here but I'm really interested in what Che is doing and I asked Che a question on his podcast which I'll come back to in a moment but interestingly my next caller Jason Connolly from Nerds RPG Variety Cast, another fine podcast of which I am a regular. So do check out uh, Jason's podcast too. Well, Jason has effectively called back on my call in to Che. 
So I'm going to actually switch artfully straight back to Jason to get his take on my call-in. Hey, Jason here. Just want to say that I heard your call-in to Che's episode. I don't know if you're a Patreon. Uh, he plays them early for there. But when the last season, last episode of Season 10 comes out, the call-in episode, he plays your call asking about the medium crunch games and the immersive play. But, but I guess I, so I'm not going to address pulling everything behind the screen, but I will address medium crunch games and theater of the mind. And I've played Savage Worlds, which is very definitely a medium crunch game. And, you know, originally designed as a miniatures game or evolved from miniatures game. And this is before the modern edition of Savage Worlds. And it works perfectly fine, theater of the mind or on a battle map. So I think you can definitely do it. I think these games can be played theater of the mind without figures and without all this kind of thing. Um, fourth edition might be harder. I've never played for for e but hopefully I'll play Conan soon. Thank you for the call in, Jason. And yes, I too have seen, you know, Le Crunch systems also played out theater of the mind. And yeah, it's all altogether possible. Jason mentions Conan. Uh, I am planning to run Conan, and um, I'm hoping that Jason might play. So we'll kind of see how that all plays out. The thing I would say about Conan, which is interesting, is that the game board in the mind is set out in zones rather than feet and inches uh, or metres and millimetres. As such, it is knowingly loosey-goosey around where things are. You're either in a zone or you're in an adjacent zone or you're a bit further away. And in a way, saying that, if everyone's in a zone, then they are all within a you know partial move of getting into contact with each other. With each other. And if it's a combat situation, visualising it zonally uh, in the mind, I think probably supports more easily a common theatre of the mind view of things. You could argue that you don't actually really need a common theatre of the mind view, but at times maybe it's useful. And so I think something like the sort of Conan system which is definitely, whoa, definitely in at least a medium crunch territory, as I think Jason is finding out as he's going through the rules. <laughs> um, so, yeah, th there is something about how I think even the medium crunch games or uh, more crunchy games can still, in the way that they're constructed, sort of support a communal coming together in a shared theatre of the mind experience that doesn't really need the maps, the tokens, you know, and all the kind of good stuff that I also really enjoy. Hey, I was a skirmish wargamer as well, you know, before all this role-playing nonsense happened. <laughs> I'm going back for quite a way. I've still got the toys in the cupboard. Um, maybe that's the subject for another podcast. Um, so thank you very much, Jason. Yes, I completely agree. Medium crunch games, theatre of the mind, they are not necessarily different things and they can come together my actual question of che just just so you know this is all getting a bit circular but my question of che again going back to this uh, mode of play that che is exploring where the players have nothing in front of them and everything game related game mechanic related should i say is is behind the screen and is with the gm um so my question to Che, and it, it, it was an open question really, was, well, is it is it binary or is it a sliding scale? So, you know, is it the case that as soon as you put anything in front of players, um, you've kind of lost them to 
the game mechanic experience, which will cognitively switch them out of the depth of role-playing that this mode of play is seeking to enable. Uh, or, or is it a sliding scale? So if you put something like, well, let's put D&D 4th edition uh, squarely there, there's a lot going on on the sheet. You are translating powers to play. Uh, and there's a continual shift, there's hit points, there's, you know, how many how many healing surges do I have left? Do I use my action point or not? Um, if I'm using the grid, well, where actually am I physically? It looks like a board game, it feels like a board game. So isn't it just a board game? Um, is it a sliding scale, you know? And, and, and where does D&D 4E fit with some of the lighter Powered by the Apocalypse games or Forged in the Dark, which are actually designed to promote fiction first play uh, and where actually adversaries are not really particularly well or f- fulsomely described. There, there might be a clock, they might have a tear, that might be about it, you know. So um, so is there is there something about the games themselves and is there a sliding scale there or is it frankly just a binary thing? You just put something in front of the players and you've kind of lost them to to a distraction that is from the purest point of view in terms of role play, unnecessary. That was my question. So what I encourage you to do is find out what Che thinks, because I'm interested, uh, and that hopefully might appear um, towards his season end podcast. There's another incentive. If you haven't already found Role Play Rescue, go and find it. It's everywhere. <laughs> now, let's get into Eventide and let's explore what, what's going on with the Eventide Cepheus Deluxe Subsector. So as as perhaps you know, Traveller as a tabletop role-playing game has been one that's been with me since 81. I think it was either the second or third role-playing game I ever played. It was in the heady days where there was a trilogy really of AD&D first edition, first edition RuneQuest and Traveller. Um, it would have been the original Black Books at the time, a game that I pretty much love and I think is going to stay with me now f- forever, you know. It's seeing continuing development, obviously, in co- sort of commercial press. I haven't got T5. I, f- I feel like I ought to, uh, to support Mark Miller, uh, to, to, I guess to say thank you, for, in a way, for Traveller Full Stop. I've certainly invested uh, a little in uh, Mongoose Publishing. I have quite a number of their first edition books and some of their second edition books, and they are, churning out is the wrong phrase, but they are certainly producing a lot of great material for Traveller. And so I do collect some of that. And I have noted a real surge in great product out of the Cepheus engine. Probably my favorite is Stella Gamma Publishing's Cepheus Deluxe. It's a, as I've mentioned in a previous podcast, it's a light iteration of, I guess, what you could call the Cepheus engine, which itself is derived from the first edition SRD. It's a fully playable game, a lightning in terms of the set of skills that are available. It is your standard 2d6 difficulty, add a characteristic bonus, add a skill, get an effect, either get a success or a failure, and indeed an effect. And that's the core of the game. No, no change there at all. But it has a whole range of you know really nice touches which i've mentioned before it has less in terms of the completely random character generation that's largely curated by the player with some random life events 
the characters have traits. These traits are um, emblematic abilities, which enable them to stand out a little bit more, which I, I really like. I think it's done really, really well. It perhaps is the place which brings in the advantage mechanic uh, into Traveller for certain prescribed things that your talent allows you to do. I think that's done well, rather than Boon and Bane, which I guess is the Mongoose Traveller second edition iteration. I never really felt that quite hit the mark in terms of coherent design along with dice modifiers. In Cepheus Deluxe, I kind of think it's set at about the right level, so I like that as well. We have a really, really nicely put together Starship design sequence in there with a simplification of armour and armour ratings. All of the Starship combat is genius in that it's done with position. Position being a, what would you call it? it would, it's, it's a bit like initiative, but it grants you a theatre of the mind style of play. And it enables you to, without having to worry about, you know, even 3D vector positioning, you just simply have a ratings on position. And that rating gives you both your opportunity to do something and in fact do a variety of things. Plus, it gives you modifiers if your position is better than your opponent's. Very, very well done. The cybernetics and robots are quite well done as well, and uh, as are the Sonics, which are, are all in there too. The trading is nicely done. They've, uh, they've linked in some random events with the trading and smuggling just to give it that little bit of an edge. Everything about it. Uh, looks looks really good. I mentioned hero points before. So you've got a, a hero point mechanic which is enmeshed. I mean, some of these are optional, but I think if you add them all together, it provides a slightly space operatic, light, fun version of Traveller. Experience points, I mean, you know, again, optional, I suppose. But experience points gives you that ability to increase your character's abilities in a meta kind of a way. You're not spending time counting up the weeks that you've been learning X or Y while sat in a starship in between jumps. You simply accumulate experience over adventures. You spend those on increasing skills, optionally your characteristics, and also additional traits. A nicely done game. And so I looked at that and I thought, well, what will I do with it? And I thought initially, well, maybe, maybe I'll run it in charted space. There's no reason why not. And I have actually got my eye on one or two Mongoose publications that maybe I'll use Cepheus Deluxe as the engine whilst playing in Chartered Space. But then I also looked at something that I might do myself. And so, enter Eventide. And Eventide is my, if you like, my subsector in a, in a place of my own design. So I started big, if you like. I started with the Noble Houses of the Empire of Stars, a block of nine sectors dominated by nine of the major Noble Houses, each having a specialised place within the overall Empire of Stars, be they chroniclers, um, starship creators, trading houses, construction and robotics, Synthetic sentience, weapons, terraforming, logistics, pharmaceuticals, you name it. These houses all have specific specialties. And surrounding these, the Empire of Stars are a circle of 
what you might call vassal sectors, sectors that feed and provide the central EOS core, EOS being the Empire of Stars, with uh, additional resources and um, specialised uh, personnel to manage the Empire's central power, structures, economy, and ultimately in places their, well, what was once their out outward-looking uh, perspective into the stars. Since then, they have regressed, or at least they have what you might call introspected. They are looking within and no longer uh, looking without. Many have moved on, though, and so surrounding even these sort of vassal protectorate sectors is hinterspace. What was perhaps what the you know the wild west, shall we say, the the outer reaches, that now are well a vibrant place where people are living, breathing, changing. There's a dynamism to it. They don't have perhaps the technologies that are very much in place within EOS, but they are a place of adventure, a place of outward looking, and indeed increasingly a place of danger. And it's out in the hinterspace sectors that I would focus right down into, well, initially one subsector, the subsector of Eventide, which is a subsector within the uh, Sinashore uh, sector. And so that's kind of how I've done it. I've sort of done an overall sketchy outline and then zeroed into a particular place where gaming can take place. So I've done some other things with it. I mean, this is all just sort of notes and bits and pieces. I've looked at the terraforming, that AOS technology that they have, and put together some very simple rules that can apply to any UWP, admittedly, over several centuries of, of time. But um, so, so terraforming is a thing. So as you generate your planets, you can uh, apply. If they're part of the terraforming programs of AOS, then there are some modifications you can do to those to, well, push them, I suppose, more towards, as, as the name would suggest, a garden world status, or at least within certain, certain limited criteria. So we have things on uh, terraforming. I've done some things with aliens. So there are three main alien species out there. Um, out to trailing, we have the Sorask, the Sorask are a Saurian, really a Saurian aggressor, I would say, that have have now started to undertake significant and hostile incursions into hinterspace and will propel the sectors out in that trailing region, including Sinashore and therefore Eventide, into a well, a tumultuous battle for territory and, well, ultimately for life. Two further species, the pacifistic vow, high technology uh, species, generally pacifists, but also incredibly powerful in terms of the technology, apparently exploitable, but that's probably a mistake. And finally, the other major species uh, out in well, surrounding the Empire of Stars are the Telek, who are, I suppose, a kind of an insectoid species. They are 
in comparison to the vowel, and more similarly to the sorask, quite aggressive, certainly like uh, um, humanity. And they are quite an interesting hive mind species that are poorly understood by the Empire of Stars. So we have some aliens that we can throw into the mix. And of course, given the number of stars that we're talking about in terms of traveller, a sector is many, many parsecs. You've got quite a lot of space to work with, and so you can do a lot more. Interestingly, in the Empire of Stars, it's interesting to understand where the control is. There is a ruling noble house, one of the nine. However, there is also something called Nexus, which is six, probably six, I think that is debated, major synthetic intelligences. As a group, they're known as Nexus. Um, they speak as Nexus and perhaps downplaying their individuality in external communications. And there, as I say, there are six of them. And it's been conjectured that they run sort of synaptic delta updates of their shared memory instances with each other over a Simulcra run J6 network. I'll come back to Simulcra. They run continuous predictive algorithms to compensate for this jump six latency in this network known as Nexus. They have proclamations. They are apparently hugely supportive of the Empire of Stars. It's not really clear. I mean, I say jump six, maybe jump higher. The Simulcra crew have orders, you know, to protect the packet ships that, that operate in between the Nexus nodes. So you've got this thing called Nexus, and that's a bit of a mystery still. Uh, quite high tech. And how that, how that came to be is in itself quite an interesting story. I've looked at longevity and how that might work, what a longevity treatment would look like in the Empire of Stars, clinically safe, apparently, ethical questions, an emerging black market, perhaps, of longevity treatments. And it's interesting that, that Nexus has encouraged this research, and indeed it is believed contributed processing and modelling to inform and extend the efficacy of this treatment. Why is Nexus so keen on this? Difficult to say, but there is something about, a, I think I'm going to explore a psychological consequence to taking a longevity treatment. Let's just see how that plays out. So there's something around longevity. We've got terraforming. We've got an interesting question also around sentience transfer. So there's a combination of a couple of the noble houses, Minoi and Uriah. They've been working on sentience siphoning technologies that transfer a person's whole consciousness into a quantum processing array. And the process was designed to capture and save a person's being into physical hardware to perpetuate existence where the physical body has failed. And this research has been thwarted at every turn by Nexus, <laughs> with warnings that the research will catastrophically dehumanise and that longevity should be enabled through physical rejuvenation techniques. So you've got something around sentience transfer with some significant problems with what I'm calling somatic dissonance on transfer, resulting in psyche fragment fragmentation. So there's there's some interesting work being undertaken on sentience transfer. We have cyborgs, preserved brain transplants into cybernetic shells, and we have androids. Uh, androids. These are effectively the simulcra. These are fully uh, artificial people, limited AI capabilities. 
that provides some capacity for a sort of like adaptive learning. Synth skin, biosheaths, uh, they can be given a distinctly lifelike look and a variety of standard models are available on the open market, including a basic servitor, pleasure models, security and construction. So very much into sort of Blade Runner territory, I think. But actually, from a timeline point of view, much, much later. So we've got some things around sentience and how, it, and, and how humanity is exploring how to develop and move sentience around. What do the Val think of that? Well, we shall see. Timeline. So I've set the game out in our timeline. So it, very much the centre of Aos is actually Terra. And I've constructed an absolutely bare bones timeline, timeline from about 2100 through to 2995 today. So it's Yes, it's, it's our timeline. It's projected significantly uh, into the future, sort of 900 years plus. And there's key points throughout that history which explains the, astro the astrography, if that's the right word, of the settled stars, the technologies that have come in, the aliens that have been discovered. And this has all come together in a relatively straightforward timeline. Uh, and it's... I guess it's manageable. It's a manageable period. We're not looking thousands and thousands of years continuing the future, but it is a long time. It's nine centuries uh, in advance of where we are today. I've done some other bits and pieces and I've started to work on Eventide itself. So all of that stuff, uh, including the envoys, I must mention the envoys. The envoys are what, what are now... Well, just that. Envoys from Aos going out into the barbaric hinterspace to uh, gain understanding of what's going on out there, to persuade of the light within Aos itself, to undertake trade, to undertake diplomatic relations. So, there's, so there, there are envoys that go out there. There's some interesting conversations about the status of envoys within Aos, whether they're high status or, in fact becoming an envoy is almost a punishment having to go out into the barbaric sort of wastelands of what actually is an increasingly vibrant and growing in power um, set of polities out in hinterspace so that is all just a structure to sit as a backdrop <laughs> to a subsector where actually some real gaming can take place because that's all well and good but actually at the end of the day you can't just game with that that just provides you with some hooks so Eventide will be a subsector within the Sinashore sector and will, if you like, almost benefit from all of that talk. But then it will zero down to, well, individual worlds and what they've got to offer. In the next segment, I'll talk a bit about how I have developed, I say developed, developing, let's be honest, that subsector and where I want to go with Eventide itself. <laughs> So Eventide as a subsector has been generated using, you know, one of the possibly even a blend of the subsector generators that are available online. Let's be, let's be honest, I've just simply gone for that. And so you can go to um, Zodani Space, you can go to the Cepheus Journal. For, I, I, I'm not sure if the code is shared, but the very similar subsector generators, you essentially put in some parameters about how sparse or densely populated the subsector is, 
some suggestions on naming conventions, push a button and out, out churns a text file. That text file can then be edited separately and then replayed back into the subsector generator to generate an actual physical map. So I've iterated on that on a number of occasions, uh, in and out, blended and changed some of the names and made the names a little bit my, uh, my own. I'm sort of reasonably happy with sort of the random generation, but I've, I've imposed some of my own names on top. I've, I've kept all the spacing and it's enabled me to play that all back into these subsector generators to create a subsector map. Now, of course, I can use the Traveller map to play those back in as well, and possibly I might use that to come. But for now, it generates a fairly basic Traveller set of data in a text file, and that's given me enough certainly to go on and has generated a subsector. The subsector generators, as I say, you can play well, you can play with them and they will generate you a nice looking graphic file which is quite large so all i've done really is i've i've played that graphic file into well i, I use the affinity suite so you know um publisher uh, photo um and, and and so on and i put it into photo actually and i've added some extra layers on top to that map i've given it a name i've turned it into a poster i've got two polities within that subsector i've got uh, the the technons and i've got the eventide uh, polity as well I've, I've drawn some boundaries and i've generated effectively a table map which can then be laid out fairly large had it printed at a print shop uh, on pvc you know backing and that's generated i think it was a1 an A1 size, fairly big, lob it on the table, suddenly you've got a backdrop to your physical game or indeed a graphic to put in your VTT. So that's kind of where I've got to so far. I'm using a range of other tools, very quickly things like UWP, sort of Universal World Profile Translators, so you can just quickly see what the actual UWP is telling you and start to think about what that actually means. I have found a fractal world generator so you can do some pictures and I've played those uh, again into photo to create world maps. I have two at the moment, only two, and I think I've got another 30 to go. So I can start to make each world pop a little bit. Interestingly, the text file that I mentioned, that's got the basic UWP, it's got some zones, it's got some other other of the core universal world profile stats that comes out of basic traveler what it doesn't have is the, the actual star data which for me is quite important because it starts to define things like orbits and it doesn't have anything about sort of dropping into the detail of the actual system each world system there's nothing there at all so what am i doing there well i'm going back to i'm actually going back to book six scouts i'm going back to mega traveler the so if you like my traveler of the 80s uh, which has got a really good design system. I'm using the orbits that, uh, that that are in that book. I'm using a little bit of the Universal World Builder as well, DGP, and using some of the older sources to generate some system data, also based around the stars that are there. And the reason that this is important for me is that if someone's going into these systems, then the the, the star will define jump distances. It will define probably the numbers of orbits that are available it will start to give some shape and um, 
personality almost to the system and so I'm generating something now that's fairly handcrafted so I've gone from a almost entirely computer generated you know randomized uh, sector generation base data and then some curated extra things on top there might be better ways of doing it you know but anyway it's good lonely fun and in many ways I would say it's classic lonely fun in terms of you know world building in classic traveler mode so I'm doing a little bit of that as well so that's that's kind of where I'm at with it. What what would I like to do? Well, I'd I'd like to be able to build out each world to at least a, a level of detail. It will have the basic map of the of the main world. It will have obviously the core stats. It will have a, a few paragraphs talking about the world and what it's like, and it will have the full system map as well of all the different orbits and the different planets that exist in that system and do one for every single world within Eventide. So it becomes like a sector book, a subsector book, in fact. 32 worlds, two page spread, 64 pages, plus maybe some of that stuff, that guff, that I was talking about earlier about the context in which the Eventide sits. So that would add some extra pages, and that would be a little, a little subsector book that, well, quite honestly, could be used by any traveller, could be dropped in probably anywhere ideally nicely it would actually fit obviously within the empire of stars and, and hinter space as a setting that's what i'd like to get to will i ever get there <laughs> will i actually get it done well good question i have all the time in the world i'm retired but i have so many other projects and you know just real life real by the way real life doesn't stop when you retire it just becomes you know a little bit more what you want it to be maybe so that's what I want to do uh, and now I'll just talk about the scenario that I'm looking to develop and how I'm doing that as well so then the scenario well I've decided to put together a scenario really for this convention year so I've gone almost from the highly abstract if, you, if you're still with me I've gone from the really highly abstract of the sort of sector generation the overall framework of the setting honed it down to a displayable subsector which it looks quite pretty now I'm going to hone in on a particular world within the eventide um, as it happens it's a world called Mabilicia which is sort of in the heart it's on it's on what's called the technon main it's, it's near the technon polity and i'm going to have a situation that's going to take place there won't say too much who knows you might play um i might even do it online in which case anyone can play but um so it's it's a situation so what am i doing there well i am trying to create a graphical view of the of the world of the worlds within uh, the Mabilicia system so it's got a picture of the star it's got a picture of orbits and I've, changed, I've created that into a graphic that graphic has been put into again affinity photo a few png graphic assets have been lobbed in sort of played around with for a bit and then generated a map and that map is also going to go on a physical table i'm going to have i've created some npcs that's not i've created some npcs but i've created um, five player characters using the cepheus deluxe rule set it's using the form fillable standard character sheet for Cepheus Deluxe with a front sheet with pictures that I've grabbed off you know grabbed off Pinterest or whatever to create a crew a crew in a ship now the ship I'm using actually is the 
what's it called? It's one of the, it's like the Cancour, I think, Frontier Courier. It's actually, I've taken that from a published source. So if I publish this, I'll probably have to change it or just ask if I can use it. It's a nice little 200 ton fast courier. How profitable it will be, who knows, but it's a nice little ship. And I've created some tokens so we can move tokens around. And then a situation. And the situation on Mabalicia is reflective of hinterspace. The fact that these polities, there isn't a large imperial navy, you know, which is going around asserting kind of some kind of glue-like control to an overall setting. These are literally small independent polities that kind of look after themselves. And they're not all at a tech level, which gives them, you know, a tremendous amount of starfaring or space, even spacefaring capabilities. And so to protect themselves or to give themselves some form of control in their broader system environment, they generally hire contractors to do the work. The situation in Mabalicia is, as is, as is the case with many contracts, that it's, the contract has gone south and the the mercenary pr sort of protection contract has has gone foul and they are moving out system if, if basically exposing mabalicia to very limited uh, control and security in its overall system environment uh, enter the players and then enter a problem possibly the players but actually you know possibly something else and then the scenario is just a very simple it's short it's a series of what i'm calling event nodes so things that will take place things that can take place almost in any order and just some guidance around what they are to give nice situ interesting situations for the players to get enmeshed in there might be a little bit of trade there might be a bit of smuggling there might be a little bit of uh, encounters in the upports within mabalicia but then you've got injected into that situation danger and a turning to the players who, of course, absolutely can ignore it, in which case, you know, there's some backstop stuff. But hopefully, and particularly given it's a convention scenario, you know, they'll they'll, they'll jump in feet first. Who knows? So there we are. Uh, always be prepared. It's called. Theoretically, that could come out when I finished writing it. It's not going to be big. You know, it's, I've got set, I've got a few thousand words at the moment. I've got system maps. You know, I've got the Eventide subsector map. Um, it's almost like a primer for Eventide. Maybe that will be of interest to somebody. I I don't know. I will do you know another few thousand words probably on it. At which point it's probably not going to be not far off ready. And then I, the only thing I've left to do is decide how I'm going to produce it to the level where it can be become essentially a pdf probably on drive through i don't know i mean it's all written in google docs at the moment because that's my basic my the, the the sort of word processor that i use i do have the affinity suite so deep sigh theoretically i should get better at layout and put it all in that i know that makes sense i know that's what i should do um i do worry that if i do that it'll just never see the light of day but uh, who knows maybe i'll try that a bit of layout, maybe. Get some art in, just a little bit of art, and use the maps that I've already created and just share them and share the actual maps themselves as graphic files for anyone who actually decides to grab hold of the PDF. There you are. Well, we'll see, won't we? I mean, it's something to do, isn't it? You know, I'm retired. 
What else do you do when you're retired? Well, you just do good old travel and lonely fun, don't you? Well, actually, no. Well, yes, but no. Um, you do that, but you do other things as well. So there we are. I'm going to move on from <laughs> Eventide and Cepheus Deluxe. That's roughly what I'm doing. Is that... Is, I don't know. Am I wasting my time? I don't think I am. I mean, I'm enjoying it, so I can't be. But is it of any use? Do do call in and just say what you think. I'd be really interested to hear. Okay, that was that. What I'd like to do now is switch from Cepheus Deluxe back to 4th edition, 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons, that is, and talk a little bit about my ongoing campaign and what's going on there. Well, that's quite a segue, isn't it? Yeah, I could, I could actually feel myself getting excited with that burble about Eventide, Cepheus Deluxe, Hinterspace, the Empire of Stars. I don't know. I don't know. I think sometimes uh, I do have this almost, I don't know, ch- childlike excitement when it comes to role-playing games. Uh, I still have it. I haven't lost it. I've still got it. And some games just evoke it and definitely feel that the Eventide project, even if it becomes, you know, just a series of one-off games, has just bubbled up that uh, excitement that I remember feeling in 1981 when Will Aylslurper, you know, the lawful good Hobbit fighter, strode forth uh, into a series of cataclysmic encounters, which I think I've reported early on in this podcast life cycle. I don't think Will Aylslurper survived. Well, I think he survived, but I think he was a, a female gnome illusionist by the end of the seven levels he got to or something. Hey, D&D 1E. Yeah, made no sense to me at all, but a lot of fun. But the 4E, going back to, I guess, what it is I'm doing now, I've spoken about, and a long-running campaign. And it's got to a really interesting point. And there's something about the design sequence of running these games where I do plan, but I plan lightly. You know, I hold on to the campaign future very, very carefully and lightly. I don't want to presuppose too strongly. Uh, we're at level six. I'd like to try and get through to some higher levels. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll be staying in the heroic tier, so up to level ten. But I'd like something that is rounded and would at least provide, if not a season ending, then certainly a series ending around about the the end of the heroic tier, so 10th level. The players are kind of on a, not really on a mission from God, they're on a mission from a dragon, uh, Shadowmire, who has requested that they sort out the supernatural freeze that is gripping at least parts of the Nentia Vale because everything around is creating chaos and death and no one knows how or why this freeze has taken place. Meanwhile, the players, of course, go on a side quest, which I hadn't anticipated, but they seemed to want to go that way, so it was their choice. I decided to follow them. (laughs) I think I'm following them more than them following me. And it's certainly more challenging to do that. I think if you give not only the illusion of choice, but actual choice to your group, that's great. And it gives you that sense that there's an organic quality to it, a creative organic quality which the players will experience as they make their decisions. They're not bound by anything that I say. And honestly, I I have to be careful. If I offer them any breadcrumbs, they're off. 
You know, they are off somewhere else. Um, but I like it. I do like it. But we now seem to be turning our attention back to what Shadowmire actually asked them to do, which is to solve the problem, understand what's going on, and end the grip of this um, uh, icy vice on Nentir Vale. I think the thing that I wanted to say was it's really strange. It's still strange to me that I am sort of discovering the fourth edition of Dungeons & Dragons this late in the day. Not only the late in the day in terms of my gaming career. I mean, you know, I've been going for 40 years. But there is something, I don't know, odd, almost time-bending about picking up all the resources and assets. And there are so many for 4th edition, which have now since been put down, not by everybody, but let's be honest, by most, for late, you know, the later edition. And most of the play, and certainly all the most all of the material that's now coming out, is for 5th. Whereas I'm just digging into the sort of rich depths of 4th. And it's been great fun, actually, picking up a topic. So the topic is the Winter King. Who is the Winter King? Starting to unravel the story of the Winter King. Question marks about the Prince of Frost. And who is that? And then who is the Winter Witch? And how is she related to the Winter King? Is she related to the Winter King? And not only that, but what is the Prince of Frost's relationship with the Raven Queen? And I don't know. I just started to sort of delve i have some assets i often use the uh, i've mentioned them before there's the fan created assets of the nentia vale uh, gazetteer and the Nente- and the nentia vale history both of those documents provide me with jump points to other sources i have some of the some of the dragons and dungeons of the periods they're all available on pdf now through dm's guild i have some of those sometimes they that will prompt me to go and get others and of course, the source books themselves. And the combination of all these very available, highly available assets helps you to delve into some of the detail and really get under the skin of some of this law uh, history to really bring forth the stuff that you need to give life to the game sessions that you've got. I suppose all I'm saying, really, there's a, an awful lot of great stuff for 4th edition that is still highly available and so to me in that sense the game's not dead you can buy it you can run it you can talk about it you can really enjoy it and you can build your own ideas around it are there tools for it yes there are i mean master plan means you can generate html files of absolutely any monster that has lived throughout the lifetime of fourth edition you've got the online offline sorry offline character builder the online character builder is no longer available but the offline character builder is available if you know where to look and you can generate any pc and auto generate you know pdfs of characters and create the um the power cards that you might need for that particular character and print them out so that is all still very available and that rich highly playable lore is absolutely at your fingertips. I've really enjoyed the process of thinking about the next step. And I have got a a very loose framework to take us up to 10th. But the way I do it, you may do the same, is I create, I suppose, an outline, but I don't don't colour it in. 
you know, I don't colour it in. I don't, and I, I kind of see how the players are moving and reacting to what's presented in front of them. Some of the ideas, that those breadcrumbs that will take them in the, in, into different directions, and then I colour in kind of around them as as they head. I still think it'll generate a nice picture. It might not be quite the overall picture that I was expecting because they, they, they will go off in strange and interesting directions. But nevertheless, I think that framework is flexible enough, broad enough, high level enough that I can generate the kind of story that I think I want to tell in a way that brings the players along with me. So it's a bit of a dance. I wouldn't, you know, and sometimes I lead and I think sometimes they lead. But overall, it's a lot of fun. And I couldn't tell you quite how we're going to get to maybe that nice, you know, heroic denouement for, well, would it be the season or the series? That's kind of up to them. And I, again, again, I don't know how you, how, how you deal with this, but I mean, a campaign that's been running for well over a year, I suppose, is it my imposter syndrome? I do suffer from it. I mean, I've suffered from it all, all, in lots of walks of life. I don't want to outstay my welcome. <laughs> Does that make sense? I don't want to, you know, I mean, we're all still playing and everyone's enjoying it. I mean, at least I think they are. So that's fine. But, I, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want people to be sort of turning up thinking, oh, it's another one of these. I, I don't get that vibe. But, you know, at the same time, I'm not saying quite stop while it's going well, but, Maybe I am slightly, you know, let's 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 at least provide a range of really good pause points. You know, we, we, we could stop here. You want to play on? Let's play on. Um, but that story is done. We've now got another story and let's move on. So I think what I'm trying to do is get to one of those pause points where you can say it's a, it's a season end or it's a series end uh, and it feels satisfying. So if you were to walk away at that point, everyone would go, yeah, that was good. That was really good. I really enjoyed that. You know, it, it doesn't sort of wibble away and sort of fade away into some sort of sort of scheduling morass where it doesn't actually happen. So that's fourth edition. I thought I'd burble about that for a little bit because I'm still loving the game. The lore is rich. And as a sort of a semi quote unquote super heroic sort of high fantasy game, I just think it rocks on toast. So that's that's fourth edition. So the next segment, I just want to talk about things that other things that I'm doing and what's sort of hit me up in terms of the gaming life over the past, let's say, three or four weeks. I think one of the things you can guarantee about the, the sort of gaming hobby is that it is crammed full of amazing things. You know, time passes and before you know it, another fantastic game has come out, an amazing supplement, a Kickstarter lands that you'd forgotten about, <laughs> typically forgotten about. And then, bosh, there it is. And you think, oh, my goodness, that's brilliant. I, I remember now why I backed it. <laughs> so that kind of happens. Um, Kickstarters of, I'm going to say, six or seven years ago that are still publishing material that you've, that you've kind of forgotten about and feel almost, it feels like, it feels free it feels free because seven years ago, you put you know you put down some serious money seven years ago. Books are still coming through. Modifius, I'm looking at you. So there are Kickstarters that do that. And then there's sort of your gaming life. You know, the, the, the sort of campaigns that you're looking at. Yes, the writing that I've talked about, but also the, the games that you're actually playing. And they are fantastic fun. 
So all of this means that there's always this bubbling energy with the gaming hobby. Is it difficult to find people to, to game with? I haven't found so. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm just... I've got to the point now where I'll just put myself out there. You know, I, I, I don't know who I'm going to get. I belong to a couple. I say I belong. You know, it's, it's as if, you know, the, their DNA um, runs inside me. But I, 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 play, I play out sort of discussions and talk about role-playing in a number of Discord chats and on one or two forums. And to be honest, there's a rich array of fantastic people there who seem game to game. So I can find people. There's, there's great games out there. There's a never-ending possibility to do things. So what's going on? Well, one of the Kickstarters to land is uh, another book in the Conan range. Conan 2D20, Modiphius, which is the Shadow of the Sorcerer. Now, I think this is almost like an extra good from Modiphius, so I'm really grateful to them. And they've produced a, a really nice mini campaign pack. So this is fairly constrained. I'd, I'm going to say it's 12 to 15 sessions. I've mentioned it before. I am in the process of whew, loading it, <laughs> physically loading it into the Foundry virtual tabletop. And I've put it out there as a possible game to run. I put it out in a couple of discords. There was some scheduling shenanigans about do we do it on a Friday afternoon BST or do we do it on a Tuesday evening BST or indeed both. Uh, it looks like it's going to be Tuesday evening BST. So another game. Uh, fortnightly to fit around the schedule of one of the players. I have the feeling that all the players are American. I, I could be wrong. I, I'm just assuming it based on the Discord that I'm connected to. That could be completely bogus. But I know at least one of them is. So that's that's quite interesting. So I've got a group of Americans and I'll be running, I, I think I'll be running reasonably soon, a Conan 2D20 game. So what have I done? I've dipped back into Conan 2D20 to, have, to remind myself what it's all about. I have run it, but I ran it years ago. I found a really good game again. Conan 2D20, it, it reads off the page actually better than I'd remembered. I know that 2D20 plays much better than it reads. So altogether, I'm quite excited about that. And I think the look that I've got in Foundry VTT is pretty good. I think I'll translate well. Can I pull off 12, 12 session mini campaign using 2D20 in Foundry. I, I think I probably can. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. And it's broadening my gaming for the year. So that's really, really nice. So we've got that. I'll mention Starforged. If you don't know it, I think it's it's probably... Is it available now on drive-through? I'm not sure. If not now, it will be soon. The sort of Kickstarter next version has just landed. Starforged, which is um, Sean Tompkins' science fiction adaptation of Iron Sworn, is all kinds of excellent. And I've had a lot of fun with Iron Sworn. I think I'm going to have a lot of fun with Starforged. Probably it's arrived not quite in time for me to have been ready for North Star, which I'll talk about in a moment, which is a convention that I run with um, my good mate Dom. But I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into Starforged. So that's another thing that's just bubbling in the background. It also has a solo play option. Have I got time for a solo play option? I don't know. I'm so busy doing everything else. Maybe not. But it's there if I need it. North Star, while we're on it, North Star is coming. It's coming 
well, indeed, as is UK Games Expo. UK Games Expo at time of recording is only about 30 days away. I'm running Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition. That, that game is totally sold out at UK Games Expo. I think it might be the only 4E game there. Kel surprise. <laughs> but I've got lots of handouts and bits and maps and tokens and, and all those cards are all printed out. All the power cards are printed out. So it's a really tactile, visual experience. Looking forward to that. That's going to be a lot of fun. I'm also going to be running some Cepheus Deluxe. In fact, I'm going to be running Be Prepared, which I've talked about earlier in the podcast. Get those maps out, get it on the table, and I, I guess a bit of a play test. But it, it's structured in a way that I'm, I'm experienced enough to deliver a good fun game in the three to four hours that I've got. So I'm not worried about it. Given the way I've structured it, it will be fine. But it is also a bit of a play test because I, I haven't played it before. But I'm sure that'll be a lot of fun as well. That game is currently submitted but hasn't yet been approved. And so when it goes out, I'll try and get as many players as I can before I turn up to UK Games Expo, which I am looking forward to. North Star is coming towards the end of June. That's a small convention in Sheffield. I run it with Dom. I'm running two two games there. I'm running Infinity 2D20. Uh, I always seem to run Infinity 2D20 at North Star. It's kind of a tradition now. I've got lots of Infinity on my shelves. I'm sort of glad that I run it there because, to be honest, I don't think I would run it otherwise because I simply haven't got time. It's a great game, and it is on the complex, crunchy end of 2D20. But nevertheless, I'm looking forward to that. And yes, I think I'm going to run be Pre- Always Be Prepared again at North Star in another slot. The other thing I would mention, another thing that's sort of crossed my bow, as it were, is, again, Cepheus. I know there's some exciting stuff coming for Cepheus Deluxe and Sword of Cepheus. There's, an, there's another version, I think, coming of both those books, which means that'll give me a huge amount of gaming pleasure. <laughs> I would say that I'm sort of writing my own Cepheus Deluxe-based Sword of Cepheus kind of game. So it's a 2D6 traveller-based uh, high fantasy game. There is a lot going on in that space at the moment as well. So there is a new version of Sword of Cepheus, if you like, that's also come out just recently. And that is called, uh, let me just try to find it. I've literally just got hold of it. It's called Westlands. Westlands is, and that harks to a West March's style of play. It's kind of like a sword and sorcery game again, using Sword of Cepheus as the base Lots of nice innovations and additions to that brought in by Westlands. Sorcery being very dangerous, lots more beasties, some more stuff about non-humans, some nice optional rules, some stuff about firearms. It's it's nicely done. I was holding off to see what Westlands would deliver. It isn't quite doing what I was looking for because it's actually targeting something else, so that's kind of fine. But it's open content, so I could could I could also use elements, I think, of Westlands in whatever game I'm going to think of producing. Is that a thing I'm going to do? I'm excited about it. Maybe it will be a thing. If nothing else, it might be a playtestable, again, demonstration game at a convention. Many more conventions to come, which I'm looking forward to in the year. So there's kind of a lot bubbling for me. I've also currently started playing in a game of Vaisen, which is Free League's sort of Nordic, is it sort of, is it mid-19th century, early mid-19th century game of encountering, I suppose, the mythic world around you and understanding the mysteries of those mythic worlds and how they, how the mythic world rubs up and affects 
our mundane material world. It's, it's nicely done. It's, it's a free league game. It's bound to be nicely done. And I'm playing in a game of that as well, uh, run by my mate Darren, who runs an ace game. Again, with a group of people. In fact, some of people I do know through my conventions and some that, again, are new to me. So, again, it's branching out and meeting new people, which, as a bit of an introvert, that's quite probably, probably does me a bit of good, really. I'm also uh, playing in Curse of Strahd. I should mention that. We are, gosh, what, what I think we're seventh level or something now. And um, I'm enjoying that. It's just, just so you know, if you, if you start a Curse of Strahd game and you run it... I'm going to say at a reasonable pace, not a particularly fast pace, and you run through... Well, I think my GM, Dom, Dom again, actually, has expertly blended a range of sources. If, if you describe it as a sandbox and you play through the different locations in whatever order you decide to play them in, probably in a slightly curated order given some of the danger levels, it's a long campaign. We've been playing... I want to say 40-ish sessions or so, I think, at last count. It's got to be more than a year of elapsed time. So it's a big campaign and a big commitment. Where are we in the in the run of things? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to tell. I think we're about two... Th- I'm going to say we're two-thirds of the way through. And we, as a group, know what our denouement wants to be. I think we have decided that regardless of how you know, expertly Strahd is presented, um, the vampire lord of Barovia, we're going to have to take him down in some kind of way. And he is incredibly powerful. He's obviously linked to the land, and therefore we diminish his power by affecting the land around us. But he's got great support. He's got a, a huge power base. And to be honest, we feel like minnows compared to him. So there's there's some very interesting playouts to be done. I'd say in the next, I'm going to say ten sessions. I'm yeah, I'm just you know putting a figure out there. But I think we've got I was going to say about two or three locations of mystery that we need to resolve to I think get us to a position where we can well almost decide how we're going to go about addressing the Strad problem. I'm loving playing my character, a half elf sorcerer called Kel. As a sorcerer, he's got an insanely high charisma, or fairly high charisma, and I've become a bit... I don't know, I I think the thing that I've added to the game as the sorcerer is almost not quite the diplomat, but the face man, you know? Somebody who goes out and talks to people, perhaps adds a persuasive element, almost like an oratorical twist to some of our uh, encounters, maybe even to provide some inspiration where inspiration is lacking. And I've really enjoyed doing that. It's been a lot of fun. So yeah, Curse of Strahd, 5th edition, bounded accuracy. It's it's almost weird going back to 5th, where you you realise that the bonuses you've got are pretty good for 5th. They're not necessarily that good if you're playing something like 4th or indeed Pathfinder. The other game that is sort of on the cusp of being something, I think, is my good mate Pete. I'm very fortunate to have many good mates, all of whom are very good DMs and GMs. May well be running with Pathfinder Second Edition, which I've been, which I, I, I was running last year. I do like Pathfinder. I think it's a an insanely well developed and designed game, really, really strong. So I think we're going to be playing some some, some classic, a, a classic, shortish adventure path stuff with that Second Edition. I'm looking forward to that as well. Honestly, my cup runneth over. 
I, I predict you know, potentially I might come back to you at some point and say, you know what, I'm doing a bit too, too much. <laughs> well, we'll see. Another thing that I'll mention is uh, May Day. So May Day is a celebration of Traveller. It happens every year. It's run by Cyborg Prime. I, th I think he's I think he's a human being. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, he is he runs his own Discord. I think he does I think he does a range of other cool things. But one of the cool one of the cool things he does is he runs a day of celebrating Traveller. There's online games. I didn't have quite the bandwidth to be able to either play an online game during the May Day celebration or indeed offer a game such as Always Be Prepared or, or Forgotten Princess is one that I've got sort of teed up already. But he does run a full day of seminars or not seminars but actually interviews with luminaries within the publishing traveller world you know you've got independence games you've got people like um stella gamma publishing and of course mongoose uh with matthew sprange yeah and so i spent some time just dipping into and listening to those uh, interviews which were very very interesting so i don't know you know again it's just something that happens other people are creating spaces where gaming can happen in all its different forms and yeah that was a lot of fun too. Lots happening in the gaming world. Well, lots happening in my gaming world anyway. I trust and hope that your gaming world is rich and fun and gives you some tingles too. I hope it does. Tell me about it. Uh, I'd, I'd be interested to hear any reflections that you have. As ever, send me a voicemail on Anchor or indeed send me an email. Contact details in the show notes. Right, well, I think we'll just head off to the outro. In a way, I think this this particular episode is something of an experiment. I had some things that I wanted to talk about, and I think rather than spending a lot of time curating, writing, preparing scripts, almost like classic box text in, a, in an adventure module, I decided that no, what I will do is I will just switch the mic on and talk. I've got my I've got my plot points, if you like, the things that I wanted to cover. But I would just talk. Now, I will edit this. <laughs> I will edit it. But um, uh, it's a bit burbly. Um, I'm hoping that it comes out okay. And that I kind of say what I want to say in my own way. Without perhaps some of the sort of clever construction that I can do when I write. So, if nothing else, it gets an episode out there. I hope you found it of interest. Do let me know yourself contact me you know talk to me about where you're up to with your gaming or what or, or anything that i've mentioned which uh, is of interest to you and you'd like to comment on i'd be really interested to hear it and i'd be very happy to play your call-ins on call-in show if you happen to contact me so there it is rich gaming life we are just heading into may and yeah it's been a really good gaming few weeks in fact probably a bit longer than that since i last spoke on my podcast so well do you know what i look forward to the next one hope i find you well and happy and uh take best of care cheers <laughs>